We are moving forward at a steady pace, and we are now in our third sermon series in Genesis, and we're asking a new big question. Is there any hope for man? We spent three months answering the question, what happened to this world? The answer to that was sin, disobedience. Sin happened to this world, which God made perfect, and it made this world corrupt and man in it. I'm having technical problems this morning, apparently. All right. Bigger. It's as big as it gets. Can you all see all right? No? Oh, you're not supposed to see the red font. You're supposed to not focus on the red. The white one. Okay. Okay. So our new big question is, is there any hope for man? What's going to happen to man who lives in this fallen world? Uh, Is he going to walk with the Lord, or will he walk in man's image, in man's corrupted image? So that's our topic for this morning, is we're going to look at Adam's image, something different than what man was created in. And we'll see, is there still God's image in man? Does man still have hope of living to God? So that brings us to our main point, that death is a part of man's new experience under the curse. We're going to see our first natural death this morning, the death of Adam. But God's image has not disappeared from man. There are still traces of it in man, and in fact, it's still the image in which we are created. But that image is corrupted by man's corruption. So it is oppressed by the sin nature which will be shed because of Jesus at the resurrection. We have a hope of living in a future with no curse, with no death, where death will be forever put away. And Moses is doing something interesting this morning. He's starting again from the beginning. Just four chapters in, he's taking us back and he's going to summarize So I thought, what better time for me to summarize than when Moses is leading by example and summarizing. Now I'm only going to summarize a few of the main points that we we have seen so far in the text, and that's going to be our overall theme for all of Scripture, because that starts here in Genesis. And what we're doing here in Genesis is crafting a biblical theology. There's two different kinds of theology that scholars focus on. One is systematic, where we take all of the revelation about a certain topic, we systematize it so that we can understand that one topic. But what we're doing here is a biblical theology, where we start at the beginning and we trace how God revealed truth to us. We follow it as if we take his chapter index and say, okay, what does he want us to learn at what point in progressive revelation? And the very first thing that we encounter is the dominion mandate. God created man on this earth for the purpose of ruling over this earth. And because man fell, we now need a redeemer. Now this occupies the majority of scripture in the Bible, this theme of the redeemer. But this is a parenthesis in God's overarching plan. God's purpose for creation was not redemption. God uses redemption as a means 
of establishing his purpose of dominion. So when Jesus Christ comes on the scene, yes, he is absolutely our redeemer first and foremost. But you know, he is not the redeemer of the angels. And there is a plan for the angels. He is not the redeemer of anything but man because he came in the image of Adam and died for man. He is going to make all things new. But he makes all things new as king over this earth. He will sit on the throne of this earth and he will rule in the way that Adam was supposed to, but Adam failed to do. Because Jesus is the perfect God-man and Jesus can rule. Jesus will succeed where man has failed. And so I have this quote here by Charles Ryrie to help us grasp this concept. He says, why is an earthly kingdom necessary? Did he, that is Jesus, not receive his inheritance when he was raised and exalted in heaven? Jesus Christ is enthroned in heaven right now, but he is on the throne of God. There is a throne for David that Jesus will have to sit on on this earth, that throne that has been passed from Adam. And that's the theme. That's, that's the storyline we're following in scripture. Yes, Jesus Christ is seated on a throne, but it's not his throne. He will sit on his throne. Is not his present rule his inheritance? Why does there need to be an earthly kingdom? Because he must be triumphant in the same arena where he was seemingly defeated. If this earth passes away before man has ever sat on the throne of this earth in the way that God intended it, God has failed. God's purpose in creation has not come to be, and Satan has defeated his purpose. So when people teach that Jesus Christ's present reign is all that he will ever receive, they are essentially saying, Satan won this round. But God had a consolation prize for Jesus. No, absolutely not. Jesus Christ will reign over this earth for a thousand years, and then his throne will merge with God's throne, and they will rule over eternity together. Jesus Christ on the throne of David, on the throne over this earth, and then placed, elevated, exalted over all of the universe. So his rejection by the rulers of this world was on earth. He was rejected as the Messiah. His exaltation must also be on this earth. And so it shall be when he comes again to rule the world in righteousness. He has waited long for his inheritance, so he shall soon receive it. Andy Woods, in a similar tone, writes, the theme of a future earthly kingdom begins in the Bible's very first page. Only or one day God the Father will restore what was lost in Eden. He will again rule the world indirectly through a human intermediary. This human intermediary will not be the original Adam, but rather the last Adam. Or the unique God-man, Jesus Christ, who is the second member of the Trinity. Man will rule over this earth. And it will not be man by his own power, but the only man who ever could rule over this earth, 
Jesus Christ, the God-man. And so we see that dominion over this earth is the overarching theme of all of Scripture. And it is exactly dominion that God is establishing through Israel. And Genesis is the history necessary for Israel to understand their mandate. It is the history necessary for them to understand their piece in the puzzle. Because God is restoring a throne to this earth through Israel. His seat on the whole, or in the Holy of Holies is that seat where God himself sits on the throne of this earth. My picture is all blurry. <clears throat> but we see that Jesus Christ is the only one who is able to open the title deed of this earth. He purchased it with his blood, and he will triumphantly receive it as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus Christ is the only one who is able to deal a death blow to the Antichrist, who will rule over this earth, calling himself the Messiah. In fact, there is good evidence that Israel in the last days may even attempt to take him as their king, this Antichrist. But it is through that that they will be converted because they will see that this Antichrist is no Messiah. And it is through the Lord's dealing with them in the tribulation period that they will all be converted to Jesus Christ and call him down as their Messiah and enthrone him on the throne of David. And so he will begin to rule for a thousand years. And so when we see the scroll in Genesis 6, we might say on one side are written 19 judgments, but on the other side is written God's plan for the ages. Now this is not in actuality, but this is the title deed of the earth. This is how God brings about his plan. God has dealed in, or dealt in different times with different people, all for the advancement of his purposes. And he carves out a special people, a people over whom he would rule and through whom he would be born into this earth and through whom he would establish his rule over all of the earth, and that is Israel. And that is the audience of the book of Genesis. And in Genesis 1 through 11, we see three preparatory covenants, three covenants that prepare the way for Israel, that prepare the way for the Messiah who will rule through Israel. We already saw the Edenic covenant that shows us the purpose for God in this creation. It shows us that man and all that is created was created perfect, but that God does not lose the battle even when his pawns act imperfectly. Not to say that we are necessarily pawns in God's chess game. We have free will. That makes us unique. <clears throat> but with our free will comes the ability to act outside of God's will. Us acting outside of God's will does not thwart his plans in any way. But through that, he brings in the promise of a sacrifice. In the Adamic covenant, we have that promise of a coming redeemer. And it is fulfilled through the covenants to Israel, the new covenant which promises atonement through the blood of a savior. That we not only accomplish redemption through Jesus Christ, but the promise of his coming rule. So we want to be careful when we divide the word of truth. 
to understand that God deals in different times in different ways because mankind has related themselves to God in different ways at different times. So God does not change. But where the introduction of sin enters into the world, you can no longer deal with man in innocence. God has chosen to deal with man through his conscience during the period of time in Genesis in which we are looking. But that is still distinct from the way that God is dealing with Israel, who is receiving the book of Genesis. So we have to be careful to interpret Genesis in its context. <clears throat> At this time in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 5, we are in the midst of the dispensation of conscience, where God is dealing with Adam through Seth and all of his line on the basis of the urging of conscience. But that does not mean that man is left without the intervention of God's word. God's word speaks into time in order to reveal his will. And we're going to see that Adam probably began to record God's will and the fulfillment of God's promises to mankind. So that we are rapidly heading towards the fulfillment of this, where God will again dwell among mankind. And he will, or we will be his people, and God himself will be among us. This is Revelation 21. We have two chapters at the beginning of Genesis where man is in a perfect environment, and we will have two chapters at the end of canon, the last two chapters of Revelation, where mankind is again restored to an absolutely perfect environment with no death and no curse. But where the one was short-lived, the second will be for an eternity because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished on this earth. And so we want to keep our central focus of how God is bringing this about. He is bringing his purposes about through Israel, where for 2,600 years before Israel, God had been dealing with man in one way leading to Israel. God is going to use this little nation who receives these first five books of canon and then records the next. He will use them to establish his purposes. And we see his purposes identified to them in the book of Leviticus, where he is talking about entering into the promised land, that land over which he will rule through Israel. And he tells them, if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, then I shall give you rains in their season so that the land will yield its produce and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. What is this? This is a rolling back of part of the curse. God says he will supersede the curse for Israel under their covenant obedience. He says, indeed, your threshing will last for you until the grape gathering, and the grape gathering will last until sowing time. You will not need for food. The earth will yield its produce to you. You will thus eat your food to the full and live securely in your land. I shall also grant peace in the land so that you may lie down with no one making you tremble. What was Cain's added curse? He was fearful. Fearful that someone would take his life in the same way that he took his brother Abel's life. 
No longer will there be fear in the land. I shall also eliminate harmful beasts from the land, and no sword will pass through your land. So I will turn toward you and make you fruitful and multiply you. God is working his will through this unique people, Israel. I will confirm my covenant with you, and you will eat the old supply and clear out the old because of the new. I will make my dwelling among you. And my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. So as Israel receives the text that we are studying in our Sunday morning services, they have this promise handed down to them in the book of Leviticus. You know, we can't be sure that Genesis was the first book written. It happens, or it was written after the events of Exodus took place. It was written contemporaneously, probably with Leviticus. As they are receiving this law and promise from God through the Mosaic Covenant, they are also receiving the same history, Genesis, so that they can see the uniqueness of God's calling on them. And just as they see it, we want to see that as well, the uniqueness of God's calling to Israel, because it is through Israel that God will establish his covenants and bring not only redemption to this world, but rule over this world. And so we look at Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, with all of that context in mind. We want to look at Genesis with Genesis-colored glasses. Genesis 5.1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Now, yes, this is a summarization of what has come before, but it's not just repeating what has come before. It repeats the events, but there's two things to be pulled out here. And the first is that this is the book of the generations of Adam. We already saw the generations of heaven and earth. This was a Toledot. These are, there are 11 of these in the book of Genesis that were likely woven together by Moses to create this history. Until Moses wove them together, they were not the inspired word of God. But at the moment where he put pen to paper and the Holy Spirit led him to do so, this became the inspired word of God. And I want to spend some time on this concept of illumination, of inspiration by the Spirit, and what that means for the image of man. You see, sometimes we look at God's word written in a book, and we think, what a human way to record your word. But I think we're looking at that backwards. You see, I have this tendency to look at scripture and say, that seems like a feeble way to do this. Can't God speak to us through dreams and visions and prophets? Why does he choose a book? Why does he choose man's invention, man's creation, to communicate with man? And my question then I have to raise is, is that our creation? Or was this handed down to man from God? You see, language itself is God's thumbprint on man. Secularism and evolution denies this. In fact, I picked up a book a couple of months ago at an antique store, and it was 
man and language. And I thought, oh, interesting. I pulled it open to the first page, and what does it say? Man evolved through grunts and groans into the language we have today. My question is, then why can't I go to the zoo and talk to monkeys? Why can't I go to the zoo and talk to a lizard? Why does no other creature ever created have the capability of language? Because language is not a creature characteristic. It is a God characteristic. Language is not something we share with God. Language is something that God has shared with us. Jesus Christ is the Word incarnate. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Language is important to God because language is part of his characteristics. Language is part of his character and he has chosen to share that with us so that he can communicate with us. So when he deviates from his pattern, we want to pay attention. This is something I like to call the Shakespeare principle. Shakespeare wrote a hundred and some odd sonnets. And in most of his sonnets, he follows perfect rhyme and meter. So when he breaks meter or breaks rhyme, you pay attention. That is where he is pointing with his finger. And if he were reading it next to you, he would say, that's the line you want to pay attention to. So out of the 11 Toledotes that we see in scripture, the Toledote of Adam is the only one that deviates from the pattern. All other Toledotes say, this, this is the generation of the heavens and the earth. This is the generations of Noah, of Noah's sons, of Shem. This one says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. So when did man begin to write? Was it through generations and generations of trial and error until he discovered how to write down language? No. Adam himself was the first one to ever record language. And I would even argue that this may have come from a failure of his and his wife's a couple of chapters earlier where they did not remember God's word perfectly. What better way to alleviate that problem than to begin writing down what God has told you? You see, we have scripture, and so we do not have to remember all that he has said with our imperfect, fallen minds. We have his word to turn to. It is very difficult for me to memorize scripture. I have a much easier time memorizing concepts. But how do you know you get the concept right unless you have the word to go verify that with? Adam began to write down God's word for us. And why did he begin to write it down? And what did he begin to write down? But God's faithfulness to his promise. Adam records his genealogy. We skip over chapter 5. We shouldn't. Because although in Genesis, this breaks the pattern, it has a pair in the New Testament. It has a match. When we get to Matthew 1, Matthew records 
This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. This is the last Adam. This is the fulfillment of the record that Adam began. This is where it finds its complement. This is where history finds its conclusion in this man. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Whereas in Adam, all die. In Christ, all will be made alive. <clears throat> we want to pay attention when God deviates because God has inspired his word and his word is trustworthy in every jot and tittle. There is a reason that God says not one jot or tittle will fade away because each jot and tittle is important. Translated into English, that means no I will go undotted, no T will go uncrossed, no serif on a letter will be missing. God's word is important to him. In Isaiah, he says that he elevates his word above his name. We worry so much about not taking God's name in vain as we should. But do we worry equally about not taking his word as it is written? I think we should. God also records a blessing here. It's the same blessing we're looking back to at the beginning, but we see it's recorded again for our understanding. It says, in the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them. And he named them man. In the day when they were created, God had blessed them indeed, and his blessing came with the dominion mandate. His blessing led right into the promise which now God alone will fulfill through the God-man, Jesus Christ. This is recorded for our memory so that when we look back at Adam, we see the beginning of the story, and when we look at Christ, we see the end. These two men have affected all people on earth more than any other man who has ever been born. Through Adam, we all die. And through Jesus, we all have the opportunity to live for eternity with Christ. Now, I know that sounds like a perfect end to a sermon, but that's point one. We're getting there. <laughs> because we also have here the promise of continuation through Adam. So although we all die, we all do find life. But it's not by Adam that we find life. It's through Adam, by God that we have life. So in Genesis 5.3, we have a second record of Adam's firstborn son. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Now, none of us here are 130. So all of us find it hard to imagine having a child at 130. This is not the oldest age we're going to see in Genesis chapter 5. 
but you'll have to wait until next week to hear more about that because we're going to go through five or six generations. But bear with me here if you have any trouble with these ages. They are intended to be taken literally, and we will take them literally. So Adam was 130 years old when he bore his son, Seth, and he bore him in his own image. It's purposeful that God repeats a phrase that he had in Genesis 1.27, where when God created Adam, Adam was made in God's image. God created man in his own image. We spent a couple of weeks on that. What does it mean to be born in God's image? It means that God has imbued man with certain characteristics similar to his. But where God's are infinite and eternal, ours are partial, limited. We have the capability of language. But doesn't language trip us up? We have difficulty understanding sometimes what people say, what people mean by what they say. God doesn't have that problem. Not only that, but through God's word, God can create. Now, we create creative worlds of fiction with our words, but God creates real living substance with his words. God speaks into creation. Our language is limited, but it is a reflection of what God has perfectly and infinitely. And so we can all still speak. We still have his image on us. That is one piece of evidence. But I like biblical evidence much more. In Genesis chapter 9, God records, speaking to Noah, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. Why is it wrong to murder a man, but not wrong to slaughter a cow? Because man is created in God's image. It's God's image in man that makes it wrong to kill a man. And if it's wrong to kill a man in Genesis chapter 9, then man must still be in God's image. Man has not lost his shared image with God. It has been corrupted. It has been oppressed by the sin nature, but it has not been lost. In 1 Corinthians 11.7, Paul writes, For a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. Now, I don't want to get much into the theology of this passage, but look at what is said here. Does it say that woman is the image of man, just like man is the image and glory of God? But no, man, mankind, is the image and glory of God. God has deviated from his pattern here. The image is recorded for man relation, relating to God, because man still has God's image. Eve, or the woman here, does too. But the woman here is not related to God in this passage. The woman is related to man. That's why the image of God is recorded on the man. I know that's kind of a convoluted way of saying God's image is still present in mankind. And it is recorded for us multiple places in scripture. Man is still in his image. And by man, I do mean mankind. In Genesis 5.3, we see that John, or not John, Seth, 
is born according to the image of Adam. <clears throat> a seed bears fruit of the same kind. So Adam now has two natures. He has the nature of God in him, God's image, but he also has the nature of fallen man. We as Christians also have two natures, a sin nature and the nature of Christ through the Spirit, which has made us alive again in him. So we can sympathize here with Adam, but when Adam bears a child, that child must also be born again. In John 3.3, 3, this concept confuses the Pharisee Nicodemus. Jesus Christ has told him, you need to be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And he says, how can I be born again? Can I enter again into my mother's womb? Jesus says, no. Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born again, can he? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit. He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born in the image of Adam is in the image of Adam. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Our spirit needs to be made alive. It needs to be revivified by the spirit. So yes, we have the image of God still in us. And we are spiritually dead until faith. Once we believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins, was buried confirming his death, and was raised again, our spirit is made alive in him. And the image of God is not only present, but it is alive. And it is through that image of God where we have the ability of relating to him spiritually. Animals can't relate to God spiritually. They are under his dominion. They are creatures of his making but they are not imbued with his image and cannot come to a saving faith in God. And so we see something unique again in this record of Adam. It says, when Adam had lived 130 years, and this may, might seem inconsequential, but do you know this word lived never once appears in the line of Cain? It never says... Enoch lived this many years, or Irad lived this many years. Life is absent from their line, and they are extinguished. But life comes through the Messiah. Life comes through Jesus Christ, and that is where we are headed. In the line of Adam, the purpose is to get to the Savior seed in which all have life. In Romans 6.23, we see, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Adam's line was bringing about life for all of mankind through the promised seed that it is pointing to. In 1 Corinthians 15, 41, the great resurrection chapter of the New Testament, we have this promise from Paul that there is one glory of the Son 
and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So also it is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, but it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown as a natural body and it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And so we shouldn't be surprised then when we get to... Oh, we're going to wait till Genesis 5.5 for that one in just a minute. Um, here we see the line that is promised to the Messiah. That line that begins with Seth, the replacement, the appointed one of God, who brings about these promises leading to the Emmanuel, God with us. It's promised again to Noah and to Shem, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, and finally the son of David, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. But all of these different links aren't isolated. It wasn't passed just from Adam to Seth and then isolated, passed from Seth to Enosh and Enosh to Kenan. Adam was still alive when Noah's father walked on the earth. In fact, Lamech was 56 when Adam died. What Adam had written and was passed down from son to son to son could be confirmed directly by Adam. Yes, that is what God said. Yes, that is what I recorded. Not only that, but Seth, his son, was still alive when Noah was alive. Noah was 34 when Seth died. Now, I'm not yet 34, and I know plenty about what my grandparents had to say. In fact, I quite enjoy hearing family history from my grandma. I think Noah had plenty of time to hear directly from the mouth of not only Seth, but Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalil, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Methuselah, and Lamech. All that God had done throughout their generations. Actually, I take that back. He wouldn't have had much time to talk to Enoch if he had any at all. But we'll get to that in a couple of weeks. We shouldn't have an issue with the record here in Genesis. It was passed down reliably with many, many men to confirm that this is indeed what God said. And then recorded by Moses for the purpose of teaching Israel. It was confirmed in its accuracy by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But let's get back to that issue of death, because, as I said at the beginning of the sermon, we have our first natural death recorded. All the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. So although there is life in the record of Adam, there is also death, because Adam does live under the curse, and in Adam, all die because sin has spread to all through Adam.
This is a bit of a review, something we did three months ago. I want to come back at it now that we have had a chance to look at Adam and Cain to see what kind of death they experienced. There are seven different deaths identified in scripture, seven different kinds of death, because death is simply the concept of separation. For us, we might pass beyond the veil. We don't know what's on the other side, and that's what's difficult for us. But for God, who sees all things, he relates to us that death is just separation. And so we had the issue of sexual death, the inability to bear natural fruit. Adam did experience sexual death, but his inability came in bearing children in God's image. Before the fall, he would have borne children in God's image because they were in Adam's image and Adam was in God's image. Today, we bear children in our image because we are in Adam's image. We bear children who are spiritually dead. This is a sort of sexual death. A child who is born is already separated from God because it is born through Adam. What is the remedy from this? Physically speaking, it's a miracle from God. Spiritually speaking, it's a miracle from God. A miracle of provision. A miracle begun in Genesis 3.15 where he promised a redeemer, a seed through whom we would have life. Romans 4.19 speaks of this physical death. It says, without becoming weak in faith, he, that is Abraham, contemplated his own body, now as good as dead. This was when Abraham was 100 years old. Something changed after the flood. Since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb as well, she was 90 years old. I don't know that there's anyone in this room who is 90 years old anymore. There's another kind of death, physical death, the separation of the soul and the spirit from the body. This happens because of the curse, because of the fall. Physical death occurs at the time where we can witness the life departing from someone's body. The remedy for this is the second resurrection, or the first resurrection. I'm glad I caught that one. Remedy for this one is the first resurrection, the resurrection to life. Hebrews 9.27 says, Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many. There is no such thing as reincarnation. We are not made alive again by any means, but Christ Jesus at the resurrection. We die once just as he died once. And for some of us, we might not even die once because he will translate us in an event called the rapture. We will never experience physical death. But there is also spiritual death. Spiritual death has already occurred at the time that we are born. 
because we are born in Adam. We are created as the seed of fallen man. This is the soul and the spirit separated from God. We were created to be together with him in the garden. Through the fall of man, through sin, we became separated from God and all who have been born of Adam since have been born separated from God. And the remedy for this is we must be born again spiritually by the spirit, Jesus Christ, who is that life-giving spirit. In Ephesians 2, we see this. Paul writes, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. When? Those in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince and the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Before you were remade in the image of God. In the spiritual image of God made alive. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. There is also eternal death. This is, in essence, the linking together of spiritual and physical death. That when physical death occurs, but spiritual rebirth has not, then the fate of the one who has passed away has been sealed. This is eternal death. It happens at the time of one's physical death. If they did not die in Christ, if they were not found asleep in Christ. This is the body, soul, and spirit separated from God for eternity. And this should send shivers down our spine. And it does. When we see it happen in Revelation chapter 20. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life. He was thrown into the lake of fire. You see, all man will be resurrected into resurrection bodies, but not all will live eternally with Christ. Some will be resurrected into resurrection bodies that cannot die, but their destination will be somewhere else apart from Christ, sealed and confirmed in rebellion. This should send shivers down our spine, and this should motivate us to reach the lost for Christ. That when God presents an opportunity to share that life that he has given to us, we should be motivated to do so because when we look at the face of one who is dying, we have to bear in mind that that may be confirmed for all of eternity, save for an intervention of the Holy Spirit through Christ Jesus. But now there is a death that we should all seek. And in fact, all of us, I believe, in this room have. This is positional death. Death of the old man. That old man who was made in the image of this world and walked according to the course of this world. When we die to self, one might say, what we mean is dying to the old man. <clears throat> this means to be buried together with Christ. And how do you do that? Through faith alone. Romans 6, 5 says, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, 
certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. This is in the past tense. This is not saying, go and crucify yourself for the Lord. This means that at the moment you believed, you were crucified with him. That has been positionally rendered to your account. And because that fact is absolutely sure, so will your resurrection be absolutely sure. In order that our body of sin might be done away with. So that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. This is our positional death that we experience through faith alone in Christ alone. There is also an experiential death. This is our sixth out of seven. This is the separation from right fellowship with God. When we are made alive together with him, we are united with him. And as we walk with him, we stay in fellowship with him. But as saved believers, eternally secure in the hands of God, we can experience experiential death. We can cease to walk with God. And what is the remedy for that? It's on the same basis as our saving faith was, the blood of Jesus Christ. James 1.14 says, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. He's speaking of believers here. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And so long as we are separated from fellowship with God, we cannot produce spiritual fruit. But on the basis of Jesus Christ's blood, when we agree with him about our sinfulness, we are brought back into the fold of fellowship. And so we can walk again in the spirit, walk in the light and bear spiritual fruit. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This brings us back into the fellowship of believers in Christ. But there is operational death as well. This is after salvation, but before physical death. And this has to do with rewards, not to do with salvation. But this is uninterrupted carnal believing, carnal living. The separation from the ability to bear spiritual fruit. This, in other words, is a more serious form of experiential death. The remedy is still the same. Confessing. Dependence on the spirit rather than dependence on the work of our own hands. But James speaks of this in his next chapter, chapter 2. He says, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead. Being by itself, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Elsewhere, we see that faith saves. What does that mean? Faith saves eternally. We are 
born again. We are held in the double grip of God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son. So how can faith be useless? If it does not produce spiritual fruit, then although we are saved by the skin of our nose, we get to heaven smelling like smoke. We get to heaven with no rewards to show for the work that Jesus Christ did in us, save for our presence there. None of us want to experience this. Frighteningly, all of us have the opportunity to experience this. But we do not want to be ashamed at his coming. But rather, we want to be found walking and living in the spirit, walking in the light. I think Adam was walking in the light. I think when it records Adam's death, This is not a moment of sadness, save for mankind. But for Adam, it is a moment of release. Imagine if Adam were still alive today and still had to see the consequences every day of what his original sin produced on this earth, the destruction of what God had created. So what what was meant for evil, God can still use for good. Now, we all here had a rough two weeks with the passing of one of our beloved members. But for us, it was a moment of joy. Because although we enjoyed her presence with us, so much more is she going to enjoy her presence with Jesus Christ. She has been released from her mortal coil. And although I'm sure she would have loved to live to the return of Jesus Christ bodily in this earth, I doubt she's complaining. I doubt Adam is complaining. As Paul says, it is so much better to be home with the Lord. But until then, we have work to do. And how do we have the strength to do that work but by resting in the Spirit? By resting in faith. And how do we rest in faith with no hope for the future? We don't. But the hope that we place in the future, the promise of God recorded in Scripture, for our edification and for our purification, gives us strength for the day. And so we might marvel that Adam had strength for 930 years to keep going, but he did. And he rested in the Lord, and it was recorded that he lived. And so we live in Christ, in his power, in the promise of his coming and of glorification together with him. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 says, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. You know, Adam will be resurrected at the resurrection of the Old Testament saints. Daniel 12 tells Daniel that he'll go to sleep, but he will be awakened again in the land of promise. Daniel will be resurrected at the same time as Adam will. Adam's not going to miss out on much. Because he's going to be resurrected into Christ's eternal rule over this earth and then over the universe. What he's missing is Satan's rule over this earth. 
That's a bit of a blessing, don't you think? But each one in his own order. Christ is the first fruits of resurrection. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming. That's our dear Evie. Christ's at his coming. And then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. We can think of all of the course of this world, the spirits of the air that rule over this earth, Satan and his reign over this earth. When he has abolished all of that, he must reign until he has put his enemies under his feet. This is speaking of his 1,000-year reign here on this earth. That's the reason it has a time period, because it is at the end of that 1,000 years that Satan will be released and he will be conquered forever, not just in chains, but in the bottomless pit for eternity, never again to be released. And so the last enemy that will be abolished is death. Satan, the serpent, is not the last enemy. Death is. God's going to close up one storyline before he closes up the other. It's like Russian dolls. And the church is just one of those dolls inside God's storyline, God's grand scheme for history. So I'll close with this verse. When this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Our main point, the image of Adam is in all of us. It is corrupt, it is death bound, and it is in need of a savior. But Jesus Christ alone saves us from death, through death, through his death. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for these great truths that we can hold on to, that we have strength for today, knowing that you are the provider of our strength, knowing that you give us hope for a future and that that future is together with you. And so we give you all the glory. We pray these things, Lord, in your name and for your glory. Amen.